If you have your Bibles, I, I'm inviting you to turn to Second Kings as we return to our study uh, there. We're in chapter 6, and we are encountering another miracle performed by God through the prophet Elisha, again for the benefit of God's people. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Second Kings, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Well, let's pray. (laughs) Oh God, you are our God. Earnestly, we seek you, our souls thirst for you, and our bodies long for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Come now, and according to your great mercy, feed us now with your word for the sake of your great name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this is one of those passages when I come to, you read through it, and, and, you're, and you're thinking to yourself, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with this? How do you get, you know, okay, so I'm going to say 25 minutes. I know you're thinking higher than that, but before us is a simple miracle story, and it almost seems trivial in terms of its importance. And some readers, even some commentators, wonder why it is even in the Bible. It doesn't seem to be very significant. And that may be part of the significance of this passage. What may seem insignificant to us is nevertheless significant to God. And here we see that God cares. So we're going to see a couple things I'm going to take from the narrative itself. Um, The first thing being that God cares about the details of our life. Uh, followed by the sense that it demonstrates God's mighty authority and power. And then under my third point, I'm using this as kind of a catch-up point, (laughs) to to look at the the miracles that have come before and to make a point about something we see in the miracles as a whole, the miracles of Elisha. So we're starting here with this idea that God cares about the details of our lives. The story begins with one of the sons of the prophets coming to Elijah with a request to build a larger facility for their instruction. Elisha was overseeing the instruction of a community of students who were being trained to serve as prophets or as spiritual leaders of the surviving community of faith within the idolatrous northern kingdom. And we're told that there were trees available for felling and the construction of a new facility 
near or even next to the Jordan River. Elisha approves the request, and work begins on cutting down the trees that are needed for the new structure. The problem arises when one of the prophets in training loses an iron axe head. Apparently, the axe head flies off the handle while it's in use and lands in the Jordan River, sinking to the bottom. And for many um, uh, of, of people reading this in our time, this shouldn't seem like that big a deal. It's just an axe head, easily replaced. Except that in the days of ancient Israel, an, an iron axe tool or an iron axe, um, uh, axe head was quite rare uh, in those days. Um, so it, a few centuries earlier, they, the world had moved out of the Bronze Age and into the Iron Age, which is um, often uh, uh, targeted around 1200 BC. And, the, uh, and iron was an upgrade, and especially when it came to tools and weapons. Um, uh, the ability to forge iron into hard enough metal that could serve as a, a plow or an axe in this, situa- in this, uh, in this case uh, was uh, kind of a, a new technology of the time, and it was rare. And it's rare because, one, it's not clear that Israel actually had the technology for creating these artifacts, and maybe they had to purchase them from other countries. They were often, Israel appears to have been behind the curve on technological improvements, depending on surrounding nations uh, for some of, uh, of their technology. Sort of the way the world often, many nations re- rely on us, the United States, for weaponry. We give them the weapons, but we don't tell them how to make it. <laughs> we don't give them the ability to, to, to create it on their own. There may be something like that, because um, in order to use iron as a, a forged tool, you have to be able to heat it. it. You have to get it to its melting point. And the melting point of iron is 2,800 degrees um, uh, Fahrenheit. Yeah, really hot. This is not like even, this is not even a Nate McEnany fire, okay? It's not getting 2,800 degrees hot. <laughs> yeah, okay. Although they come close if you've been to our Sunday night fellowships. Um, no, you have to have a, a, a smelter. You have to be able to use bellows. And wood is not enough. You have to also use coal. And the process requires that after the first time you heat iron um, up so that it, it's, it begins to melt away from the ore that it's connected with and it runs out, once that takes place, it's still very brittle. You can slap it on, on the ground and it breaks. So you have to repeat the process. And even after you repeat the process, it's still not strong enough to be used as a weapon or a tool. So then this is where your blacksmiths come along, and they have to work it. They have to hammer it. They have to forge it to, to create um, both the, the shape and the strength needed to use as a tool. So this was, this was extremely laborious, and it required a lot of work and technology to create. So all that to say is, what seems like a trip to Home Depot <laughs> and not a big deal was more like what one commentator says, it's more like borrowing somebody's car and, and parking it you know, on a bank and forgetting to set the, the, the brake. And, and it slide, you know, this, this car slides into a lake and is totaled. It's something like that. 
And the urgency of the text arises when the, the, the man who loses the axe head immediately exclaims, it wasn't mine. It was borrowed. And so now we see that this, this man is on the horns of a dilemma. Based on his exclamation, what's being indicated here is he did not have the means. He did not have the ability to replace this iron axe head, and it was quite valuable. Um, and so somehow he's got to figure out how to gather the, the monies. But in an extreme situation, the law of God, the law of Moses, allowed for the owner of the property to, uh, uh, to require that the individual who lost the property become an indentured servant, a, a kind of debt slave, until the property was paid for. Now, sometimes we, just to back up a moment, sometimes we, we, we look at that and we think, that, that seems kind of like a primitive law. Why would God allow for that? But the reality is there were safeguards around this law. But in principle, what the law allowed for was it was, you know, there's actually wisdom in the law of God. So on the one hand, it's, it's showing concern for property. It's a concern for the owner's property, and it's an encouragement. The law allows the, the property owner to loan it out. So it allowed for free lending so that those in need could borrow a, a tool like an, axe, uh, an iron axe head that would allow for the building of a new facility. But on the, So it protected the rights of the property owner, um, and at the same time, there were limits on the... Uh, at the end of the day, no matter what the debt was, um, every seven years, those debts would be forgiven. And so there was balances and there was wisdom in the law of God. But all this to say is this puts this borrower of the, axe, um, uh, the iron axe head in a bind. He's in a financial jam, or at least in a very delicate situation with the owner um, of this property, of this tool. And there's something else that's interesting about just the story, and it has to do with the placement of the narrative within Second Kings. It follows the healing of this, this enormously important wealthy commander from the north. We just read about the healing of Naaman's leprosy. And then after this, this little miracle about the floating um, uh, axe head, you have these international stories of, of, uh, of, of political and uh, military dealings between the northern kingdom of Israel and the Syrians to their north and how Elisha is in the center of these international political events. And then tucked in between these headline-grabbing uh, miracles, you have this little story of a seminary student, you know, a, 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 a church leader in training, um, you know, getting in a bind with the, the loss of, of borrowed property. And I was thinking, you know, how would the original readers have read this? The original readers being the exiled Jews in Babylon. They themselves were, they found themselves in a sea of Gentiles. They were cut off from their land, cut off from the temple, and perhaps wondering with all the great events, the historical epic events that are swirling all around them, will God hear my prayers as a, a Jewish person living, you know, scattered uh, somewhere in, within the Babylonian uh, empire? 
Will he have regard for my individual personal daily needs? Or, or are my needs like, you know, a loss of, of property, um, valuable property, are those needs maybe inconsequential to God? Or maybe they're, you know, just as we read the story and it feels trivial to us, we wonder, are our needs trivial to God? That's what the Jews, I, I think, would have wondered. And, and even we sometimes may have similar kinds of uh, thoughts and questions, you know, given what's going on in the world with Ukraine, with, you know, the economics uh, that are in uh, jeopardy around the world. And we think about disease and those who have actual life-threatening diseases. This isn't a life-threatening situation. Does God care? Is he concerned And what this passage like this reminds us is, yes, God is interested in the great historical events of the day, and he's also concerned. There's something very tender about this passage, something very that demonstrates the mercy of God, that he cares about the individual needs of his people. This is a picture of life in the kingdom. This is a picture of of. Israelites who are believing Israelites, a minority in their, uh, you know, a spiritual minority within the northern kingdom. And God has uh, concern. He has compassion and kindness towards them. And it's a reminder to us that God knows the needs of his people. And and just as we can approach God uh, as a father, they could also, they were in some sense children of God, their father. They didn't pray to God as their father, but they had this, this tender relationship with God. And as a father, he loves to supply the needs of his children. He loves to protect and to supply uh, uh, their, their, their needs. And in the same today for us, that God is well aware uh, of our needs. Well, not only do we see that God cares about the details of our lives, we see in this small miracle actually something that's an amazing feat, a mighty demonstration of power and authority over nature. Throughout 2 Kings, and really this is true of the entire Bible, there is this kind of background, uh, in the background, an apologetic that is being made. And that is, the people of the Old Testament were surrounded by nations who worshiped their own gods. Even within their own nation, it appears that the the true believers in Yahweh were a minority at this time. The followers of the prophet Elisha are are definitely not a majority uh, within the northern kingdom. Baal worship, along with the worship of other gods, was alive and well. And so part of the question that runs in the background is, how do we know who the true God is? This is not just a question for today. This has always been a question for God's people. And then the related question is, who has authority to speak on behalf of this God? Just as Naaman saw the mighty power of God at work to heal him from his incurable leprosy, So now we read of God through the prophet Elisha momentarily changing the laws of physics by causing the iron axe head to float to the surface of the Jordan. An iron axe head is dense. 
It is heavy. It is impossible for an iron axe head to float in water on its own. And God once again shows his authority over nature, the laws of gravity, and in the process provides tangible evidence that he is the true and living God. He has power to overrule the normal laws of physics in order to restore a single axe head for a borrower, a seminary student. This is actually quite a feat. And it reminds me of this passage from Isaiah 64 that was used um, as an encouragement. This is a prophecy of Isaiah used as an encouragement to the future Jewish people in exile, in Babylonian exile. Isaiah 64.4 says this, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. What is it that Isaiah is, is, what's the truth that he's proclaiming to the exiles in Isaiah 64? He's proclaiming a truth that in all the history, in all the history of all the nations, with all the gods, small g, that have been worshipped across that history, There has been no God like the God of the Bible, like Yahweh, in terms of his mighty deeds, historical deeds, not just answers to prayer or or deeds done behind closed doors. Consider a slave people in Egypt under the mighty Pharaoh. Egypt was a superpower of its day. And God, with mighty miracles, the, the plagues upon Egypt, reduce Egypt, brings Egypt to their knees so that not only do they encourage the Israelites to leave, but they burden them such that Israel almost, in a a sense, plunders Egypt on the way out, carrying out the treasures, many treasures of Egypt because so badly did the people just want them to leave. And then remember that at the Red Sea, they have the Red Sea behind them, and then suddenly Pharaoh changes his mind, and the armies approach, and they're hemmed in. The Red Sea on one side, the the great Egyptian army on the other. What God could save a a group of slaves uh, from this impossible situation? Yahweh, who parts the Red Sea. His people walk through the waters of judgment on dry ground and safely uh, 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 arriving on the far side. When the Egyptian armies try to do the same thing, they are wiped out. They are judged. They are drowned. They are lost in the sea. What God is able to sustain hundreds of thousands of, of Israelites in a desert wilderness, not just for a camping weekend, but for 40 years, providing water, providing bread from heaven, again, sustaining them. And what God then is able to lead this group of Israelites into a land that is, that is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a fertile land, but it is also inhabited by well-fortified uh, um, uh, uh, Canaanites living in walled cities. What God in history has ever done this? And then leads them to the the great kingdoms of King David and Solomon. 
And even in exile, part of what, what Isaiah is saying to the people in exile is, your turn's coming. Wait. He's the, Yahweh is the true God. What God can take a people who have been scattered to the four winds within a large empire and restore them to their land? That never happens. Only God. Only Yahweh. From of old, not one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. And the critical thing, this is for the people of God, those who wait for him. And add to that, overruling the laws of nature in order to supply this, this seminary student with lost property. It's not just mighty power, but kindness and tenderness and mercy. You know, I felt this this last week. We, we were in a location where um, it was just really crowded. Everybody's on spring break, right? And, um, and so we're... We're going into a, a place to do a hike, and, and it's all parked up. And it's just like, I just remember, hey, Lord, it would be really nice to have a parking space. I don't usually do those kind of prayers, but I was like, Lord, I need you to, <laughs> to intervene here. And right at the head of the trail that we were going to take are two parking spaces. We hadn't seen a parking space up until we got to that point. I, I think, you know, sometimes, Lord, you're just, you're just amazingly unnecessarily good. This is the way the Lord is. What kind of God is like him? And this is the same logic that is enforced within the New Testament when a man named Jesus comes on the scene followed by his 12 disciples. And Jesus showed an even greater command over nature. On one occasion, being asleep in a fishing boat with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, You recall that a severe storm suddenly arises, not uncommon, but it's so severe. The winds are so powerful that the disciples believe they're going to be capsized and lost within the sea. And Jesus, they wake Jesus up, and we read that he rebukes the wind. He says to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And what was the response of the disciples? You see, they get the apologetic force. On the one hand, yes, thank you, Lord, we're still alive. But this is what they say. They are filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? If you're going to believe, if you're going to be a theist, I mean, you can always just be an agnostic or an atheist. But if you're going to be a theist, the Bible's saying, there's only one God who has performed these level of miracles. And ultimately, Jesus will go beyond this. He's willing to use this mighty power on behalf of his people. And our great need is not to have expensive tools replaced, but to have our sins washed away, our lives redeemed from the massive debt that we owe to God. And the man Jesus with a much larger piece of wood has defeated death itself through his death and resurrection that we might be delivered from the great enemy of sin and death. Again, just as Isaiah writes in, 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 in his book, from of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those 
who wait for him. Your faith is not in vain. That's partly what we're to learn here. Now, before leaving this miracle of Elisha, I do want to highlight a truth that I think is in the background of all the miracles that we've been studying over the last several weeks. What I think we see is that Elisha is heading, more than heading, he is the embodiment of a counter-temple movement within the northern kingdom, okay? So he's a counter-temple movement. Now, I need to explain this. Elisha is ministering within a culture of death, both in terms of the spiritual, their spiritual commitment to idolatry, but also uh, it's a culture of death in the sense that the land itself has is, is been exposed to drought and famine. It almost appears poisonous. In fact, it is toxic. It's a poisonous culture. But in contrast to this, there is Elisha, in whom the presence of God and God's power dwells. Elisha, so the northern, um, uh, the, the, the believing, the Bible-believing people of the northern kingdom have been cut off from the temple. They have been cut off from the presence of God that was uh, found uniquely so at the temple in Jerusalem. But though they have been cut off from the temple, they are not cut off from God. And God cares about his people. And so he sends them Elisha, who in some respects is demonstrating more uh, than what the temple in Jerusalem perhaps was, was demonstrating. In the sense, he, he serves as this kind of mobile tabernacle He's this this mobile temple. Uh, Wherever he goes, you see the presence of God for blessing within the northern kingdom. Again, going back to the wilderness travels of the Israelites for roughly 40 years. In the wilderness, the tabernacle of God meant it was associated with the provision of water in a desert. The presence of God at the tabernacle was associated with the manna, the bread from heaven that came down every day, except on the Sabbath. The day before, they had to gather twice their need. In Jerusalem, the temple had the picture of an Edenic garden um, uh, as part of its art within the, the temple itself. And it pointed to the idea that God's presence creates... Um, it, it create, it allows um, uh, the people and the land to flourish, something approximating the Garden of Eden. This is what Elisha is. Everywhere he goes, the power of God is at work. Consider just going back over some of the miracles. When he first arrives in Jericho, they, they tell Elisha the prophet that the, the springs of water somehow are poisoned uh, such that uh, people are sick and the land is, is not fruitful for crops. And in that scene, Elisha you know, scatters some salt upon the springs and the, and the springs are healed such that now the people can drink it and that the land becomes fruitful. When the kings go to war in Edom, they are near dying from uh, thirst, from a lack of water. And they bring Elisha the prophet forth. And Elisha says, tomorrow the valley will be filled with water. Again, 
the presence of Elisha, the presence of God in Elisha is just is, is giving this life-giving water, saving uh, the, the Israelite uh, armies. And then he provides the olive oil for a, a widow who's left with debt, you know, and her sons are threatened with debt slavery as a result. Kind of a similar passage to the one we read today. And uh, the presence of Elisha means that the olive oil is multiplied so that she can pay off her debts and have uh, 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 oil left over. The wife at Shunem is barren, but because of Elisha's presence, she is able to have a son. And even after the son is is raised and um, probably like a teenager, he dies suddenly of an illness. The presence of Elisha means that the son is literally resurrected from the dead. And then he provides healing to the poisonous stew. He provides a multitude of bread for the hundred prophets in need from 20 loaves of barley bread. He heals the great general of his leprosy. And then we see him raising, you know, this piece of property uh, for the, uh, uh, the, the, the student. Everywhere he goes, he's bringing life. He's bringing blessing. He's bringing water. He brings food. He brings healing. He brings the release from debt, and, and he brings redemption. It just flows in his wake. And all of this is pointing to the greater Elisha, of course, This helps us understand the ministry of Jesus, that he is the counter temple. The presence of God has has long left the temple in Jerusalem, but suddenly Jesus can refer to himself as the temple that you can destroy and it'll be raised in three days. John refers to him as the, the presence of God and Jesus tabernacled among the people. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's bringing food. He's bring, he describes himself as living water and that the Spirit will produce the same living water in those who, who trust in him. He feeds the multitudes. He's healing the blind and the deaf. He's cleansing the lepers. He's, forg- he's going beyond Elisha. He's forgiving sins when we consider the paralytic that is lowered in his midst. He's, he's raising multiple people from the dead. He is the temple presence of God. And part of what we're meant to see is that as we draw close to the man, to the prophet of God, in our case, Jesus, that that life-giving water, that life-flowing healing, the grace that we need, it flows in and through his people uniquely. This is not a life-giving water for everybody. This is not for the entire world. This is not for the wicked. This is for those who've placed their trust, who are connected like branches to the vine, to Christ himself. And in this temple presence, it gives us a picture of what we're supposed to be as God's church. Paul refers to us as the temple of God. And that we as a church are this presence with one another, And then as the Gentile Naamans come into our presence, into our sphere, into our orbit of influence, we are to have that kingdom presence of life, living water to the world around us. We make the kingdom visible. It's not our living water. It's not from us. It's the water and the life that flows uniquely 
from Christ, uniquely by the Spirit of Christ. I can only talk about this right now in just broad outline. And for the sake of time, we'll have to leave it here. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for this Old Testament picture of the kingdom of God at work. We're thankful, Lord, for the ministry of Elisha, and especially as he points forward to the ministry of the great Messiah, of the God-man, Jesus himself. Lord, may we draw near to the living water, to the grace that we need in Christ. And as we are fed, as we are watered, May that water flow through us into the lives of those around us and to the world around us. We, we do not do this on our own. We only do this in your power. And as you grant us this grace, may it re- lead to our lives and hearts full of gratitude and full of praise and love for our Savior, the one who has redeemed us. And so we pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.